Well, I learned a uh, new word this past spring, and I learned it from the medium of a uh, Father's Day card letter that was given to me by my youngest daughter. And in this card, uh, she articulated, uh, she said, Happy Father's Day. She said, uh, you are my dad when I am small and when I am tall. And I thought, thank you, Dr. Seuss, for teaching us the rhythms of language, right? And then she said, um, she said, I love you as a dad and as a hooker. And it was W-H-O-K-E-R, hooker. And I thought, you know, in Larry McMurtry's writing, that would be a curse word. Um, but I'm going to interpret it differently coming from a six-year-old. And so I thought there, I, thought, I was like, oh, I was trying to parse it out. Like what I'm your, and then it dawned on me, worker, worker, you're my dad and I love you as a dad and as a worker. And I thought, you know, for, for a child, a, a, a parental title of mom or dad and worker are inseparable. You can't, you know, you can't have one without the other. They see us as moms and dads and grandmas and granddads and as workers. There's a sense in which our work is inseparable from our lives. We were called and created by God for work. And that's what we hope to look at today. And we learn about work through imitation. And so uh, if you're a Rangers fan, uh, or even if you're not, you can appreciate the career of a guy named Michael Young, played for the Texas Rangers, and his, his jersey was retired last night. And I was watching some of the highlights of the people that spoke about Michael Young and Tom Grieve, who's a television announcer and, and has a history in, in baseball. He, he got up and he, and he talked about Michael Young and he said, uh, he said, I'm going to close today by quoting my favorite, by saying my favorite Michael Young quote. Now, Michael Young, if you, if you know who he is, he, he was a, not only a great player, an all-star player, played in a couple of World Series, but he was also just a great guy and a great for the community and a great teammate, a leader and all that stuff. And so, uh, one of his teammates, Ian Desmond, had been on record saying, uh, you know, they were saying, well, what do you think about Michael Young or what do you remember? And he said, well, I'll tell you what, when my kids ask me someday, how do you play the game of baseball? I'm just going to say, like, Michael Young. And, you know, it's just so moving because we think there's so many things that we teach and we can't really explain it. And somebody says, well, how do I do this? And you just say, just watch her or watch him. And if you do that, you're going to figure it out. You know, we, we imitate people and that's how we learn how to work. So just kind of a recap. We're, we're looking last week. We looked at at rest as a gift from God that we call Sabbath, something that God gave us. Uh, early on in our history to give us a break, you know, to remind us that we're not defined by our work, that we're more than our work, that God loves us despite of the goodness, you know, whether our work is great or whether we're not doing so well, but God loves us regardless and he provides for all of us uh, a day of rest. And then we have six days to work. We got a day to rest and that's, that's sort of a, a, a foretaste of heaven that we have to a time that we enjoy God and we enjoy each other. So that's the gift of Sabbath. So we talked about that last week. And then we were left wondering, okay, well, what do we do with the other six days of our week? And so God, we see in the creation accounts in Genesis that God worked six days, created the heavens and the earth and everything else that we see and we know. And, and then on the seventh day, he rested. And so just as we imitate God, because God rested on the Sabbath, uh, we also imitate God in work. God worked 
and so we work. So one of the ways that we're inspired to work is by watching God at work. There's a great psalm. Uh, there are a lot of great psalms that point to work and the work of God's hands and the work of our hands, but I love Psalm 8. Uh, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it starts out talking about, you know, when I behold the works of your hands and everything you're created, I just, I marvel and I say, what, what am I? What are human beings that you are mindful of us? I mean, you're the one that, that worked and created everything that we see, everything that we enjoy, and, and, and yet you condescend to speak to us and to relate to us and to commune with us. And it's just a great triumphant thanksgiving for the work that God has done that we get to enjoy together. So God worked, we worked. We were created for work. In Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, uh, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over livestock and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. So we observe in the Genesis creation story that God invites humans to imitate his work. So did you notice that in the text it talks about filling the earth, that human beings are God's commanding us to fill the earth to subdue the earth or govern the earth and to have dominion over the earth, to reign over the earth. And those are three things that God is already, he was already doing in creation. God filled the earth. God subdued the earth and God has dominion over the earth. So he's inviting us as human beings to take up the work that he's already begun. So we imitate God and we learn how to work. God fills the earth, subdues it, has dominion, and then we are called to fill the earth to subdue it and have dominion. Work, we interpret from the Genesis story, is inherently a good thing. Uh, the, the story of work and understanding of work from a Christian perspective starts out as kind of a good news, bad news, and then good news story. And the first part, the first good news there is that God created us to work. Our existence as human beings is inseparable from work. And we think that when we're when everything shakes out in the end and God uh, redeems the world once and finally and everything shakes out in the end and he returns to judge the living and the dead and we experience the vision of heaven that we see in the book of Revelation, we still imagine that there will be work for us to do. Uh, it's a little different than the work we do now and we'll talk about that. But we were created for work. And work is inherently good. There's a dignity to work. There's a joy of work. All we have to do is watch children to remind us of that. I love and so am so thankful watching our own kids work, uh, even in the home economy, and they have learned, uh, mostly from Amberly, of how to work in an orderly way with precision and, and the joy and dignity of the things that we get to do as human beings. And so it's funny, you know, you try to take a chore away from a child and they're usually going to be aggravated with you. Now, as we get older, we don't mind if people take our chores away. Uh, but when we're young, we love to have jobs. You know, we love to know that we're making a difference. So if it's my job to take out the trash and you take out the trash for me, 
And I'm going to be upset because that's my job. I was put here. I, I want to do my part. You know, kids want to do their part. And we see this in all the things that they do. But um, we learn to work by imitating our, our parents and our grandparents, our teachers, our coaches, and uh, all of that. Now, we think about, I've just been thinking about chores, you know, and we all end up some form or fashion learning chores. And some, every family does it a little differently and how they compensate chores, how chore, what chores look like. And some of us, based on where we live, some of us live in town, some of us don't live in town, some of us have, uh, you know, livestock and farms and different responsibilities where our chores are a lot more like work than some of us maybe who live in town and we don't have as much going in, in the home economy in that way. And some of you can remember a time when this area was more of a frontier and you're Life at home and the chores that you had when you were young uh, look a whole lot like a full-time job. You know, many of you could tell stories, and many of us can tell stories about our parents and grandparents who grew up in a time where it was your chores were life and death for uh, your community and for your family. And so that's kind of a good segue into, you know, the hard parts of work. Well, if God if God created work and it's so wonderful and has this dignity, why the heck is it so hard? Why is work hard? Why is there so much about work that just drives you crazy and keeps you up at night and stresses you out and doesn't allow you to really live like maybe you think you're called to live? So that's the bad news about work. And it's not a new story. We, early on, just shortly after we were created, uh, we refer to this event as the fall of humanity. Right? A time where, I mean, we blame Adam and Eve, but all, all humanity, given the capacity to choose free will, and the capacity to choose to love God, uh, we chose instead self-love over the love of God, and we began to make a bit of a mess of things. And so because of our choices and because the way we began to go, the trajectory that we were on, part of the fall, part of the curse of humanity is there will always be an element, a negative element to work. There will always be an element of drudgery even to the very good work that we do. So we can read about this in Genesis 3. starts out talking about, you know, this is what's going to happen. Childbirth is not going to be a simple, easy thing anymore. There's going to be a lot of pain involved. Uh, it's going to be a really hard thing. Uh, work is going to be hard. The ground is cursed. In pain you shall eat of uh, all the days of your life what you get from the ground. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That part of the story is a tough part of the story to swallow. And it's a part of the story that we know too well. I don't have to describe for you to use your imagination to imagine what thorns and thistles look like in our day-to-day lives. Hardship accompanies work. Thorns and thistles, for some of us literally, thorns and thistles inhibit the work that we've been called to do. Makes farming at some points very miserable. And then there are thorns and thistles that find their way into all the work that we do, our teaching and our business plans and our art and our music and just anything we can imagine that we put our hands to, thorns and thistles, hardships find their way in. Not only do we live in the wake of the fall of humanity, which happened a long time ago, but we experience every day uh, what provoked the fall of humanity in the first place. Right? We talked about in our workplaces, uh, we see evidence that human beings, when given free will and splendor of creation, created with the ability and the power to make choices and to give life, 
will sometimes choose self over the good of others. I know that's hard for us to believe. But we see it all the time. And we continue to make those choices to the detriment of our workplaces and our families. Uh, you could even go down the list, the familiar list of the seven or eight deadly sins or capital vices where we look at things like vainglory, where I'm, I'm in it for, for me. I'm in it for what I can get. Uh, we can look at lust and just the desire for more. Like I have to have, if I see it, I want it, and I'm going to get it. And if I have to step on somebody on the way, then so be it. And then there's greed. Where again, just I, I can't stop taking. I need more and I need more and I need more. So again, these are not unfamiliar to us. We see them every day and how they affect our workplaces. So that's the bad news. And again, it's a familiar story. And we're left wondering, okay, well, is it just going to be that way? Is life just drudgery and we just got to go to work and get by and it's going to be miserable and that's it? And so we'll try to punctuate our life with vacations and leisure time and avoid as much work as we can? Or what is the vision for work? Is there hope for us as people who are created by God for work? What's the hope? The good news, in summary, is that God has begun a work of redemption in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. We see it in in a very personal way as we are given the opportunity to be free from our own sins and to be liberated, to be given life where we have chosen death. We have the gift of eternal life, which begins now in our lives. We have the ability to be filled with uh, the fruit of the Spirit and be full of joy and those things. We, we have that opportunity, the deliverance from sin and self. We also see uh, that, that Christ is at work in all kinds of places in the world. Everywhere we look, if we have eyes to see, we can see Christ at work. And if you think about even the way that Jesus arrived, and, and then in his 30 or so years that he was on the earth, and before he was crucified and, and, and dead, and then raised from the dead, and ascended into heaven, if you see just that, that amount of time, and the way that Jesus came, he was born of a virgin, he was God incarnate, here he is living fully, fully human, fully God, he was born into a meager family, where he learned carpentry. His dad was a, a carpenter. And so, you know, just a very common story. And out of that common story, God chooses to bring the redemption of the world. And we think about when Jesus was ready for ministry. And it was time for Jesus to begin. And the first thing that happens is he goes out to the Jordan River and he's baptized by John. You remember the story? And, and as he's baptized, the, the God shows up and the voice of the Father uh, says, this is my beloved son. Hey, world, look, this is my beloved son. And with him I am well pleased. Right? Take, take notice of what I'm doing and how proud of my son. And again, this is before Jesus did any work. And here, here he is. And for everyone to see, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness where he's tested and he endures all the temptations that we endure, but he overcomes them. And he begins to uh, destroy in that way the work of the devil, the evil stuff that we see around us. And then Jesus begins his work of ministry. He comes out of the wilderness and he's, he's healing. He's sharing the good news. He's uh, presenting a new way of life, a new way to live. He's setting people free from all sorts of diseases and ailments. And there's Jesus. 
And then one of the things Jesus begins to do when he's going about his work is he begins to call on us. He calls first together these 12 disciples that we know of, uh, hearkening back to the 12 tribes of Israel, the way that God would govern and raise up his people. And so there's going to be this redemption force in the world. It's beginning with 12, and it went out from there, and all the disciples, and it goes out from there to all of us. And Christ was calling people then, and Christ is calling people now. And he's calling us to work. But before Christ calls us to work, just as he himself was baptized in the Jordan River and heard the voice of God say, you're my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased, we get the same opportunity. Before we begin our work, we get to come in through the waters of baptism and we hear, you are my beloved son, daughter, with you I am well pleased. So before we ever do anything for God, before we ever do ministry, we get the baptismal affirmation that you belong to me. And whether you do work that you're proud of or whether you do work that you messed up and you're not proud of, I don't love you any more or any less than I do right now. I've given my life for you. You are my beloved son, daughter. With you, I'm well pleased. I love the way uh, Oz Guinness talks about it. He says that there, for all of us, for every human being, there's a primary calling and there's a secondary calling. So as we sort out our work in the world and how we're going to do our work, uh, we realize that we have gifts and God has given us gifts and then God begins to call and say, hey, I want you to put those gifts to work over here and I want you to raise a family and hey, I want you to put those gifts to work over here and I want you to teach school and I want you to put those gifts to work over here and I want you to train up people to be entrepreneurs and God begins to call us and tell us what to do. But before that, he says there's this primary calling and that's just that basic baptismal affirmation where we understand that God has called us, first and foremost, to be a son, to be a daughter. That's our primary calling. So we find out there what we were created for, to be sons and daughters. That's our primary calling. And if we miss the primary calling, then the rest of it, it just it un- comes unwound so fast, and we lose the meaning of it. We don't see it in the proper light. Then work is just work, and there's nothing else to see about it. We don't see the redemption. We don't see the whole... We're just going to work. But if we see the primary calling and we understand that we are sons and daughters of God, first and foremost, and nothing that anyone ever does or we do can take that away, it changes the way we see the opportunity to work. I love the way uh, John Wesley liked to talk about it. Uh, this guy that's credited with uh, being the founder of Methodism, him and his brother and a few others, but they, uh, he would always say, you know, of course God doesn't save us because of our works. It's not like you and I do just the perfect amount of work and God says, oh, you did a great job, Strebeck. You finally perfected that Excel spreadsheet you've been working on. I think I'll save you. You've earned enough merit for me to save you now. I'm finally pleased with you. You've made a mess of it thus far. But by golly, you worked hard enough and you figured it out. And now, perfect timing. I'm ready for you to be part of my family. You know, thank goodness it's not that way. God doesn't save us because of our works, even the really good works that we do, serving the poor and doing whatever. God doesn't save us because of that. But when we read our Bibles, it causes us to ask, well, golly, it seems like good works are really important, though. And so where does that fit in the economy of salvation? And so Wesley loved to say, well, God doesn't save us because of our works, but neither will he save us without our good works. Neither will he save us without our good works. We, we are redeemed. And in the process of being redeemed, we do good work 
And that work participates in God's redemption plan. It's incredible to think about the work that we do from Monday through Saturday that God uses to redeem the world. Now put in that perspective and in that light, all of a sudden my work takes on a different shape. And it helps me get through those hard days. It helps us get through the days where we can't make heads or tails of what's going on and we're really discouraged and there's a lot of tension in the workplace and et cetera, et cetera. We join Christ in work and we participate in the redemption of the world. And in a way, as we do that, we are helping to reverse the curse that's on humanity and all creation through holiness of heart and life, the way that we live uh, as we are being restored, uh, recovering the image of God in ourselves for all the places that we've bungled it up and that others around us have bungled it up and we get a chance to be restored and redeemed to original vision of who we are. And then we begin to redeem what vainglory, what lust, what greed have taken away and robbed from us in our homes and in our workplaces. So when we look at work and we look at those callings, the primary calling and secondary calling, your secondary calling then becomes just Whatever it is that God has called you to do, whatever it is that you're up to, that you feel like God has called you to do now. And, and sometimes that's a really salient thing. And it's like, I know that God is calling me to be a teacher and I just know it within a shadow of a doubt. And it's hard, but I'm going to do it because God is calling me. And then other times you go, you know, I got into this work because I thought it was supposed to what I was supposed to do. I'm not crazy about it right now. I'm kind of looking for something else, but I know there's still, still good work that needs to be done. And then other times we have work that we do just to pay the bills. It's hard for us to make sense of it and we get frustrated by it and we go, but you know what? It enables me to do all these other things that I know God is calling me to do. And we, and we, it's just a complex thing, you know, and the way that work is. And I listen to your stories and I pay attention to what students are going through and what we're going through. And it's, it's hard to make sense of what exactly, you know, God is calling us to do. It's a long journey. Never do we have, when we're 20 years old or 40 years old, a picture of what our calling, how our calling is going to unfold from now until we're 80. We just don't get that luxury. And it changes very often. And we can all tell stories about that. I love paying attention to the work that people are called to do that sometimes isn't what they get paid to do. And I watch many of you do it. You know, you do, you do your job and you're really good at your job and you get paid for that and it's a service to the community. Uh, but then I see you doing other things. I see you creating things and building things and training others and being a part of leadership and serving in ways that gives life to other people. Two of my favorite and two of the most famous poets from the 20th century, uh, Wallace Stevens and William Carlos Williams. Uh, it took me a long time to realize this. They're both people that you read in your high school English class or your college English class, and neither one of them got paid to be a poet in their lifetime. They were both, uh, Wallace Stevens was an insurance salesman. Uh, William Carlos Williams was a medical doctor. And they were both really good at their jobs. But on the side, in the early mornings and at night, and as they were walking to work and they were walking home, they would write poems. And so after uh, time went on, people figured out, gosh, they found these poems tucked in their coat pockets and all this stuff. And they're like, man, this is really great stuff. But they never stopped being doctor and insurance salesman. But God had called them to create art, to provide beauty in that way. And so we see that happening around us. And uh, you know, it's not just humans that get 
a foretaste of the redemption that God is, is working in the world. Uh, it's, it's not just human beings. It's not just us living together. But we see it in the world around us when, when there's uh, good work that takes care of creation and when there's a exploitative work that doesn't take care of creation and other people. And we see this. I mean, Paul writes about it in, in, in Romans 8. He says, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that God will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And we as believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of our future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. So, don't we resonate with that? I mean, we know there's future glory that we await, that there's a redemption, a final redemption, where everything shakes out and God redeems and restores everything finally. But in the meantime, there's a lot of groaning. In the meantime, there's a lot of pain and suffering. And Paul's saying, we we eagerly wait and we groan and travail, and not only us, but all creation. I mean, the mountains and the trees and the rocks and the entire... I, if I was a better scientist, I could explain you know, all the way out to the solar system and galaxy. Everything we see on the microbiology level and all the way out what we see only with telescopes, everything is groaning and awaiting God's redemption. Because... The fall affected all of that. And we're longing for redemption where the, there, there doesn't have to be the ripping away of life and destruction day after day. So we have hope. And we hold on to that hope. But in the meantime, it's hard. We participate in the redemption, but it's hard. We kind of wrap up. I love the, if somewhere along the way, the United Methodist Church kind of isolated and, and focused on three things. They said, you know, every local church, if you want to know what we're here for, the purpose of every local church, and this is not unique to Methodism, but it's just how the language that we use, the purpose of every local church is, number one, to maintain worship. You know, just kind of keep, keep stuff going. To make sure that the table is set, that the sacraments are available, that Holy Communion can be available to people so we're reminded that we're forgiven, so that baptism is available for people when they need to know that God chose them and marked them from before time, that we have a place in the family. We got to make sure that the scriptures are being read. We got to make sure that there's a culture of people being served and serving others. We got to make sure that worship goes on. We got to sing our faith. We got to pray our faith. We got to do the stuff, right? The maintenance of worship. It's part of our work as Christians. And uh, in a sense, working is worship. So anyways, the first one, the maintenance of worship. The second purpose of the church is the edification of believers. That's kind of a fancy word for, you know, discipleship or growing in our faith. I can't grow in my faith without the church. Nobody can grow on an island. No, no disciple was ever made out by themselves in a solitary environment. We all grow up in Christ together. Uh, I need the whole church to, for, to, to grow. And we need each other. And we read together, we pray together, we worship together, we serve together. And that's how we grow. The church exists for worship, to edify believers. And then finally, 
and, and that's kind of what the subject of the sermon today, the church exists for the redemption of the world. For the redemption of the world. We have a cosmic mission statement. We are involved in God's redemption of the world. And not just in what we do in the church, of course. It's, it's work that we do Monday through Saturday. As the church, dispersed in the world as missionaries, it's not limited to spiritual work. And it's a reminder of who we work for. When you and I go to work on Monday, we go to work on Thursday, we go to work on Saturday, we're working from home, we're working from Indonesia, wherever we are. We're, we turn in our assignments and we present our projects to other people. But at the end of the day, you and I work for God. We work for God. So whether I'm writing a report or I'm building a fence or we're creating a plan for someone to get out of debt or whatever it is that we're doing, we're helping people or we're working for God. doesn't matter what we do. Our labor is given to God as an offering. So we've acknowledged that uh, all of us have a job that is greater than just what's on our job description, uh, that we're all working for God, we're all given gifts and called uh, to serve God in that way, the, whatever our secondary callings may be. And so I just want to ask as we wrap up, who is it when you look around in the world that inspires you to work? Who is it that you look at and say, Okay, I want to learn how to play baseball. I'm going to watch Michael Young. Well, who are the school teachers? And who are the entrepreneurs? Who are the moms and the dads and the grandmothers that we look at and we say, okay, they inspire me. I want to work like that. I want to tell you about a, a guy that inspires me. And I talked to him just this last week. He's a guy that grew up across the street from me. He's 84 years old. I had a chance to have a brief phone conversation with him last week. Just kind of randomly... And he's given his life's work to architecture and engineering. And he's a wonderful architect, a great engineer. And uh, he, he grew up in the Nazarene church. And so Nazarenes are kind of a cousin to Methodists. You know, they focused on some different things that we did. But anyhow, he grew up Nazarene, and he was always involved. He was on all the committees and all this stuff. But, but he has, in, as an 84-year-old, he can more clearly art, articulate than I can. I wish he could have come and preached this sermon. But he can tell you exactly why he's on the earth. And he tells me, and when I talked to him, he said, hey, Brian, I'm telling you, it's such a joy, such a pleasure to have these gifts of engineering. And when he started, by the way, there were no computers. There was no AutoCAD. So he's like, man, I love getting to learn these new programs. He's like, I can go out with my tape measure and measure it up, and I can take it home, and I can overlay it over blueprints. He's like, I can do so much more than I used to do. And he's like, it allows me to serve more people. Everything that came out of his mouth was like, well, I was helping this school, and then this church asked me to help, and I was doing it, and I just love it. It's my calling. It's why God placed me on the earth. And he said, you know, I, what really helped me see that was an experience I had with the Holy Spirit in the 70s. <laughs> and I was laughing. I'm like, the Holy Spirit in the 70s. That'd be a great, like, book title, you know. But so he's in his 30s, late 30s, early 40s. And remember I said Nazarene, which is like Methodists. So imagine if we all started telling our stories, be like, you know, we had this experience with the Holy Spirit. And he's like, I, I know, I knew God. He said, I was always a Christian. But he said, I had this experience and it just inspired me. 
And I just wanted to serve God. So everything that I did as an engineer, and so now he's like, all my work, I want to serve. I just want to serve God. I want to serve people. And that inspired me this week. That made me think, you know what? He sees it in clear perspective. His only frustration is that he's 84 and he can't do every single thing that he would like to do anymore. But we watch God and we watch others and we're inspired to work. My prayer is that we're reminded that we belong to God and therefore we have the strength and the ability to take the gifts that he's given us and offer them freely in the world as an offering and that we can participate in the redemption of the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.